Welcome, listeners, to a new episode of the Case Podcast, a new conversation about software engineering. And today, my guest is Mark Seemann. Mark, great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Um, very fittingly, we're here to talk about your book, which is called Code That Fits in Your Head, Heuristics for Software Engineering. What better topic to talk about in a, software, <laughs> in a podcast about software engineering? It's Indeed. awesome to have you. So um, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? All right. So um, I'm, yeah, my name is Mark Seaman, as you said. Uh, I live in Copenhagen, Denmark. I've been, been here all my life. i um, been a programmer, software architect for the last 25 years, basically. Um, I originally uh, have an education as an economist from the University of Copenhagen, but decided that that wasn't really what I wanted to spend my life on. So I, I retrained myself into being a software developer. You know, th this was back in the 90s. So basically, if you could spell HTML, you could get a job in IT. And that's what happened to me. Okay. So um, I've known you for a long time from conference appearances and from your, uh, from your blog, which we'll definitely recommend and put in the show notes at the end. But the topic we're talking about today is a book that you recently released, which is called mm -hmm. Code That Fits in Your Head. So um, uh, the subtitle is Heuristics for Software Engineering, and I think mm -hmm. both are intriguing and interesting. So maybe you can we can start this off by you telling us why you chose this title and why you chose the subtitle. Yeah, so so actually, the, um, the I think the subtitle may be closer to the original title that I had in mind. So we can start with that, you know, heuristics for software engineering. Um, so so the um, the motivation for the book was that I've spent the last ten years maybe coaching various different software development organizations on on fairly low level things like you know how do you do test driven development, how do you move in a more functional direction, you know, things like that. Um, and um, overall, or you know, during all those years, I, I started to notice that I would basically um, there was there would be some explanations where I was you know when I would be telling people you know how to do or why to do certain things, I could just tell that they, these explanations resonated with people the, you know better than other types of, of explanations. So I started just you know. Um, keep reusing I'm, i came, came back to the same ex explanations and again and again because i could see that the these were actually the ones that resonated with people uh and after having done that for many years i started to think about you know okay this actually seems to be a collection of ideas and and you know, suggestions that um instead of just keeping keeping them local to you know coaching you know a team and so on i might as well just scale it up and write it write it down uh, and publish it uh, as a book as well because they seem to be you know ideas that are fairly um generalized uh, reusable not in the sense that you have to use all the ideas in the book but you can you can think of the book as a catalog of ideas that you know some of them go to together really well and some of them you know you can definitely you know, view those ideas as optional. You don't have to pick them up, but you know, if that makes sense for you, um, you can pick them up. Um, so, so this, um, I started to, to, um, to think about this as being related to software engineering in the sense that if we go back like 10 years ago, for example, I was very much in a position where I was, I was thinking about software development as, as being mostly a craft, you know, just like, you know, the, the whole idea of software craftsmanship. Uh, but also because I, my, my father was a craftsman as well, you know, real one. He, you know, he was, he was a bricklayer, a stonemason or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, um, so this whole idea about, you know, learning from, you know, a master apprentice uh, relationship and, and, you know, that way of, of picking up, you know, a craft made a lot of sense to me. And I, you know, back then I felt that, you know, software development was basically like that, that you couldn't really, you know, you couldn't really formalize things that it was all just, you know, a, you know, collection of personal experiences that mm -hmm. sort of, uh, you know, came together as as you know you matured as a as a professional and then you became better and better at what you did you know from from that set um so that's if that's you know if you'd asked me 10 years ago I, that's probably what i would would have told you but then you know because i had this experience by with um you know 
using or reusing the same ideas over and over again with various different teams because I reused the things that I could see resonated with people. I also started to think about, okay, so there's actually a set of things that seem to resonate with people that are you know, more reusable in the sense that I can use the same set of motivations. I can use the same rule of thumbs, uh, with, you know, independent teams. Um, mm -hmm. so I began coming back to this idea of maybe that's actually part of what it is, you know, an engineering discipline is, you know, if you, if you have a look at what's real engineering in, in quotes, if you will, um, yeah. real engineering is also quite creative and there's a lot of unknown you know there's a lot of problems where you don't know whether you have the solution if you want to build a you know bridge across a span of water or something like that uh, you have this, the general idea of how you would go about and do you know solving that problem but there's still a lot of you know problems that you actually need to find solutions for um so um so i began to to view this set of heuristics as being you know a small step towards something that is more like software engineering if you will oh. uh, so that's why i i chose the um, the subtitle um heuristics for software engineering and um and then the 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 um the overall title of the book is code that fits in your head and the reason for that is that um one of the uh, the main ideas that runs through the book is this idea of um, the cognitive constraints that we are, you know, equipped mm -hmm. with in our brain. So the brain is not a completely understood organ, of course, but but you know, there's some uh, there's some experimental ev evidence that seems to indicate that we have, you know, we have some short-term memory, we have some long-term memory, and particularly the short-term memory is actually quite limited in the sense that we can keep about, you know, there's this famous paper from 1956 called the magical number of seven plus minus two. Uh, so we've, if we just take that number seven as a, you know, a rough a guide on you know how much things how how many things can we keep track of in our short term memory um that's about 7 and you know let's not fight over whether it's you know 5 or 9 or maybe a little bit more or less but it's not 50 it's not 100 um and once you begin to think about this idea of of you know having a very limited um set of things that you can keep in your brain at any given time um that might actually begin to affect the way that you think about how to organize code. Um, so that's the overall idea uh, in the book that uh, that code should be organized in such a way that that um, there's not too much stuff going on uh, at any given point. Uh, of of course, you have to build a realistic code base where lots of things happening. You have you know if you count all the things that have to happen in a realistic code base, that will be plenty more than seven there was probably going to be 700 or 7,000 things going on or yeah. even more um but the idea is to organize the code in in such a way that the, that um when you look at a, a piece of code an isolated piece of code and you try to understand that there should should not be more than you know seven things going on so that it fits in your brain um so that's that's the overall idea with the title and the subtitle mm-hmm it reminds me, one of the very first, I think my very first professional project that I programmed on, that was a long, long time ago, mm -hmm. it had this uh, this approach where the people wanted to do object-oriented analysis, but they didn't really know what that was. So mm -hmm. they came up with a ton of objects. They had like a these two binders, two huge binders of objects alphabetically sorted. And it was ah. like 2,000 things, you know, <laughs> it was like a all on the same levels. Like this was yeah. the, sort of the most obvious violation of that rule that you just <laughs> yeah. structure missing and nobody could make any sense of that. Right. Because everything was cross-referenced to everything else. Right. So I think everybody who has tried to maintain structure of some kind has some ideas of how to, how to get to that. So I think that's a very oh, understandable yeah. goal. So, um, maybe if we look at, maybe if we approach the book from a top down perspective, I noticed that you segment it into two major parts. Yeah. Um, one right. is called, I think, um, Accelerate or Acceleration, mm. and the other yeah. one is called Sustainability. Yeah. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Why are those? Why Why do you deem those two facets to be the most important ones? Um, so, so I was actually struggling a little bit with finding good words, you know, good, you know, single words that that encapsulated or you know represented the essence of what's in each part. But the but the idea basically of the two parts of the book is that the first part is. Um, is going to tell you a lot of, of things about how to approach a greenfield software development um, 
problem, if you will. Uh, and there are lots of ideas there where you can also use those ideas, even if you're doing brownfield development. But but a lot of the ideas in that part of the book is are things that people typically will associate with greenfield development, like test driven development, and you know setting up the development environment and, and things like that. You know, um, doing a vertical spike uh, through a complete architecture, walking skeleton, things like that. Um, so. Um, so that part of the book basically gives you an example of how to go from zero code to a working feature. Uh, and that's why I, you know, I was trying to figure out what to call it. And I thought, well, let's call it accelerate because, or acceleration, because this is where you accelerate from zero to, you know, zero mm -hmm. code to some code at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, um, so that's the idea of that. Uh, so, so, um, so there's a sort of a, like a narrative through the entire book where we start from scratch and um and i show you how to build a you know a fairly realistic uh piece of sample code mm -hmm. um but then i thought you know after the first feature is complete and you sort of have gone from zero code to you know a working feature um there's still a lot of other problems that teams typically um have to to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis that are not re related to starting up something from scratch but but it's more related to working with an existing code base so how do you refactor how do you add new features how do you you know troubleshoot defects um all sorts of things like that um and that's why i created another another part of the book and i call that sustainability because you know the first part of the book is is about how to how do you get into a good you know how do you accelerate from zero into a good you know sustainable pace but then you also want to be able to sustain that pace afterwards so that's why i call that sustainability uh, because um, it's basically all sorts of different you know ways to um, mm -hmm. to uh, approach that problem of you know how do you keep a code base um from uh, how do you how do you keep a code base from deteriorating as you add more and more you know stuff to it because you know that's what often happens is that you know it, as you add more st stuff to it, it it becomes more and more difficult to um, to mm -hmm. navigate and understand it mm -hmm. that's actually one of, one of the things that i found interesting um as you mentioned you developed this little case study mm -hmm. and uh, you use c sharp and the net environment as an example but it really didn't matter which was no. something that was very good for me because i don't know the first thing about c sharp right. i've never programmed professionally except for maybe a hello world tutorial yeah. or something like that with, with c sharp but it really doesn't matter. I can totally see how this translates to basically any language because it's not about programming language features, yeah. um, or at least not about the syntax of programming right. language features, right? right. Uh, can, did you? One of the things that I wondered a bit about, I think you elaborated in the book, but I forgot, it was um, of all the languages that you could choose, um, why didn't you choose F-sharp? Did, were, ah, you tempt, right. were you tempted to do that? Because I know you have an interest in that. Right? Oh, absolutely. To, to yes, that? yes. No, I'm very happy that you found it, you know, readable, even though you're not a professional C-sharp developer. That was very much my goal to be able to, um, to, um, to get to a wider audience than, mm -hmm. um, than just the C-sharp people. Uh, so, you know, personally, I've, I've learned a lot from, from, uh, you know, Martin Fowler book and Kent Beck books, which uh, would typically have code examples in, in Java or in C++, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. So I aim to be able to be, you know, language neutral in the same way that they were in the sense that if I am a C-sharp developer, if I can understand that Java code, I aim to write the code so mm -hmm. that it would translate the other way. Because, you know, I have as much Java experience as, as you have C-sharp experience. I've written Hello World, <laughs> and that's basically it. Mm -hmm. um, so why didn't I write it in F-sharp? Well, basically, it's because I wanted this book to be, uh, you know, to reach a, as wide an audience as possible. And why I really love F-sharp as a la language. I'm also painfully aware that there's um, there's not a big audience of people who readily just go and, and read F sharp. Um, they exist out there, but this is definitely like, um, I think Microsoft itself puts it something in the, in the, um, they don't have exact numbers, but they say something about um, orders of magnitude. So they say something like this, you know, millions of people who write C-sharp code. And there, there are hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of people who write Visual Basic code. That's also on .NET. And there are thousands of people who write F-sharp mm -hmm. code. That's sort of how they put it. Um, so um, I, I wouldn't be able to reach the audience that I'd like to reach if I had, you know, written the example code in F-sharp, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's going to be my next project, maybe. Mm -hmm. I hope. <laughs>
<laughs> well, as you wrote it, how often were you, how often did you notice, oh, I would really do this differently if I had a, I don't know, purely functional language? Mm -hmm. How often did that even play a role theoretically? Oh, that comes up a lot, actually. Um, but um, one of the things I did with the book is that I've, I've actually written the code in this style called um, functional core imperative shell. Mm -hmm. um, so um, so as much as of, of the design uh, as possible, I've actually tried to write as pure functions, even though they're um, I'm trying to be idiomatic to um, mm -hmm. to a style of C-sharp that, you know, again, that would also make sense to a Java developer or maybe a mm -hmm. Ruby programmer. Um, but um, but I've also spent a lot of time, you know, the last five years basically trying to find ways to um, translate, if you know, FP concepts into object-oriented programming and the other way around as well mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to tr try to sort of figure out, okay, how, how different are they actually or are they more like, you know, different expressions of the same fundamental ideas um and there's definitely the um i think you know most of the things you can do in functional programming you can do in object-oriented uh, programming as well it's just that you know what typically happens is that in many functional programming languages like f sharp for example there are things where that would be a one-liner in in mm -hmm. f sharp and then you have to translate it into c sharp and it becomes three class files or something like that mm -hmm. uh, but it's not that it's impossible to you, you it's not that it's possible to translate the ideas. It's just like some verbose things become very succinct all the other way around, you know, depending mm -hmm. on the direction yeah. of, of, um, yeah. of translation. Um, but, but, you know, I still, you know, I, I, I'm, I think I managed to keep the entire core logic of the sample application as, mm -hmm. uh, as a set of pure functions. Um, so, um, okay. I, I don't feel as constrained as I did, you know, Five years ago, if you'd asked me, I would have said, you know, oh, this C sharp is so frustrating because there are things I could mm -hmm. do in F sharp and I can't do that in C sharp. But now I've learned how to do them in C sharp. It's just like it just creates more verbose code that you'd normally like, but it's not that I can't do them. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's not dwell on this any further. Um, it's, it's not the topic enough. of the book. And I, <laughs> I really like that. I like, really like the fact that it's applicable to a wide variety mm -hmm. of, of programming languages and styles. So uh, maybe if we dive in a bit, I don't think. Uh, it would be t totally boring. It would also sort of spoil the fun if we went through all of it, but maybe we can uh, yeah, pick a few enough. things mm -hmm. uh, just to give, give listeners an impression and maybe have some discussion about some of the concepts that you address here. So I've picked three. Um, we can, of course, uh, move on to something else if it comes up. So the three things that I picked up was uh, vertical slices, triangulation, mm -hmm. and rhythm. Those are all chapter titles in the book. Yeah. So maybe we can start with the vertical slice Mm -hmm. concept yeah um what you develop in the book is a uh, what you could call a typical well maybe not typical it's a little small but you know from the structure it's a typical kind of enterprise application that people yeah. would write with a database backend and some front end stuff like that so right. can you explain to us a bit what vertical slicing has to do with this with this thing Right. Yeah. So, uh, so this is, um, so it's not my idea at all. You know, I've, I've picked it up from various different people. Uh, I think this has been something that, you know, that's not one person that's associated yeah. with this idea, but lots of people. Um, but the idea is basically that you try to go from, you know, when you're looking at a feature, you're trying to get a feature or part of a feature completed as quickly as possible. Um, instead of getting, you know, the alternative would be to get, um, you know, mired down in uh, having to implement a complete layer of things. Um, so it's easy. Yeah, I think it's most um, easy to explain the idea of, of, a, of a vertical slice if we try to contrast it with, you know, how people often go around, uh, you know, mm -hmm. about things. Um, so what I've often seen teams do is that they, um, they get very... Um, they sort of get hung up on a particular aspect of, uh, you know, a part of a layered application architecture and it's typically the data layer uh, where you know i've met quite a few teams that um, that basically they spend months if not half a year on just trying to find you know come up with a, a good comprehensive data layer that can access the database and they spend a lot of time you know doing that and in all that time they have nothing to show for their efforts because they're just you know you know, whiling their time away on, you know, creating a nice data access layer. Uh, so on, in contrast, the idea is to, to start with, um, you know, pick some 
small feature uh, where you could actually say this is realistic to get this small part of the application up and running in you know maybe one week maybe two weeks if sh you know the shorter the better um, so the one that i picked here so the example the code base is a an online restaurant reservation system um so so the um the first feature that i actually picked here was just to be able to um to make a reservation. So th this is a REST API, so you should be able to post a little JSON document that represents a, rest, uh, a restaurant reservation. And, you know, I would consider that feature complete when I have data in the database. That's basically uh, what that vertical slice is about. Um, so um, so this is trying to um, to go through all the, the different concerns that you'd normally divide into layers or strata of, you know, a classical, you know, layered application architecture. So a vertical slice slices, you know, vertically through all of that. So it involves both the data access, but it also involves the business logic uh, and, you know, any sort of uh, presentation logic that might be um, be present as well. So in this particular example, for example, at the at the outer boundary of the application, um, we have to do data, you know, input validation because we get JSON, but you know, there are various ways this JSON could be malformed. So we need to figure that out. Then there's a lot of business logic that actually has to determine, okay, can we actually, you know, can we accept this restaurant reservation um, because um, we might not have a table that fits the number of people in the reservation and so on. And then finally, if we decide that we can accept the reservation, we need to actually save it into the database so that we could later on, you know, retrieve it. Um, so that sort of cuts through all the different concerns of data access and business logic and, you know, presentation layer and so on. So that's, that's why we call it that. And I know that, you know, you're, you're basically asking for the benefit of the listeners because you, you know, this already. Um, but, um, but, but that's the general idea. Well, I'm also asking because I have some follow-up follow-up questions, yeah, right? Cool, so the cool. one of the things that I found interesting was that you that you sort of stopped the REST API layer. Uh -huh, yeah. So did you consider adding an actual UI on top of that? Oh, you definitely could. Um, it's well, this is really also just a choice that reflects uh, my personal expertise because I haven't touch UI development for the last mm -hmm. 10 years. I tried doing some Angular back in 2012 and, you know, basically left it in disgust back then. <laughs> um, and it's just my temperament. And I know lots of people who, who enjoy JavaScript quite a bit, um, but I'm heavily on the statically typed you know, side of things. Um, so I couldn't really reconcile my, my love for static typing with JavaScript. Um, so, uh, so yes, you could definitely add some some user interface uh, on on that sort of um, approach to things. Uh, I just didn't because I have no mm -hmm. idea how to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, on the other, well, just behind this layer, then if we, mm -hmm. if we go down from the from the REST API layer way down to the data, database, um, mm -hmm. I think you you picked a traditional MySQL RDBMS, but it, uh, sorry, MS SQL Server yeah. RDBMS. But it could be anything. Could be MySQL it, Server or whatever. It doesn't really absolutely. matter. Yeah. Um, uh, how would you? What is your recommendation on how to distribute uh, responsibility among the different styles, uh, uh, layers or types? Does that factor into your uh, into the heuristics that you that you give people here? How do you make people good decisions about where to put what? Uh, yeah. I I actually didn't write much about it in the book because I I didn't. I didn't want the book to be a book about, you know, architecture. Mm -hmm. So I left that vague, basically. Uh, the way that I typically think about this is that I, I would, I would normally think about those typical three or four layers of application architecture still in the sense that I would think, um, about a part of the data, you know, a, a part of the application architecture as, as being the data access components, maybe there's more than one. And I would think ab about another part of the application architecture as being the, you know, the business logic, and then there would be the presentation logic and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's often how I think about things still. Um, I, I probably more write in the sense of ports and adapters, uh, than, you know, your typical horizontal layer app application architecture. Um, but, you know, still, even if you, if you, if you look at ports and adapters or onion architecture or hexagonal architecture, they're sort of more or less, you know, three words for the same, maybe yeah. with some variations. Uh, you typically have the core of the application, which is the business layer, and then you would have some, you know, concentric circles around that, that would be, you know, have other concerns like data access and, and user interface, for example, and so on. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I still tried, you know, but this is just my own, you know, default approach to things that I would often gravitate towards that sort of, you know, um, separation of, of technical concerns, if you will, mm-hmm. that, that I'd like to keep the data access separate from the input validation. Mm-hmm. So what prompted me to ask this was mm-hmm. you're, you're mentioning that very often you see people or teams um, stick with data for a very long time, right? Trying everything to get the data layer perfect. Right. Um, which I can totally imagine, but maybe it's because, um, you know, sometimes you get, uh, you get this from having one or two experiences recently, right? But the, uh, but my experience is that, um, I've seen, um, people spend not enough time with the data layer, right? So I've seen, I've seen ah, people yeah. spend too much time with an abstract concept of, of, uh, of, of the business layer with the, with the goal of going for an onion architecture, we don't really mm-hmm. have time to explain all that. So hopefully our listeners have some yeah. idea of what this is, this abstract core of business logic. Um, that, that sounds like an awesome idea unless it hurts you because you didn't care enough about the data layer. So I was just mm-hmm. wondering how do, what are some, what are in your experience, some good, good heuristics as to how, how to, how do people find out whether they're spending the right amount of effort <laughs> at the appropriate uh, concern or segment or, or layer or ring or whatever the metaphor is that you uh-huh. there. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, you know, since we're already talking about the vertical slice, I think that, you know, doing a vertical slice is one way to figure out, uh, where the, um, where the difficult parts of your application might reside. Um, so, um, not that it's, you know, there's few universal solutions to, to, you know, problems like that, but I think it, it'll, it'll give you some, data on which you can base further decisions if you mm-hmm. try to start out doing you know pick pick one small feature and try to implement it all the way through mm-hmm. um, this is very much in the style of, of uh, growing object oriented uh, yeah. software guided by test by you know net prices dear freeman and i really subscribe to that general idea because i think at least what it does it is it it'll generate a lot of insights into you know, what parts of the application actually turns out to be difficult because it might actually not be the parts that you think are the most difficult ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you might, for example, as as you said, you've seen uh, people who may have been spending all their time on the the core logic layer, um, and then they haven't really figured out how to efficiently store things. Uh, that might be the, the case as well. But I think if you do one or two, you know, a couple of, of vertical slices, you'll probably find out where the pain points are because it, it really depends on the sort of application that you are, uh, you know, that you're developing. Now, what I know about, you know, the little I know about your career, I think you spend your time um, with larger systems that I typically tend to spend my time in. Um, so that that's probably also why you have that experience. And I have another set of experiences because i i often work with um the the kinds of the the teams that often contact me are, are fairly small teams that work on on fairly specialized you know types of applications um and sometimes there's uh, i've worked with one team that had a you know a very large database uh, you know um, backing it up but the stuff that we actually worked with was still you know code bases that weren't you know that difficult um and i think you you may be working on large larger scale mm-hmm. um architectures and you may run into different sorts of problems um yeah. so i so i also just wanted to point that out because again you know i don't come here with a universal um experience i haven't tried all sorts of things and they, you mm-hmm. know so so what i have here is just suggestions for what i've found work you know mm-hmm. work for me um but I've, i found those vertical spikes to work very well for me yeah, so I, I can say from my personal reading of the book and my personal experience, um, mm. um, um, my colleagues and I were working on lots of different projects of lots of different mm. sizes, and I found a lot of what we wrote pretty much applicable, potentially applicable to for every team. It's Ooh. just possibly different parts that they would yeah. pick, right? It's a collection of heuristics, and you pick whatever makes sense for you, and I don't yeah. think you ever suggest that you have the one answer for everything. That's cool. good to hear. I like this. I definitely like the idea that the vertical slice will help you focus on what's important mm-hmm. and and. and Actually, what's important to the outside users of your mm, system and too, not to yeah. your, yourself, to your personal interest yeah. or, you know, um, CV optimization needs or whatever it is, but rather on the actual value that you want to deliver to somebody mm-hmm. else. And that I uh, really, really like that thought a lot. So um, if we can move on, um, one of the things that you talk about a little is uh, uh, triangulation. Yeah. What is that? 
Yeah, so triangulation is a, is a technique that um, that comes it falls fairly naturally out of test driven development. Um, so so this uh, you know the the traditional way that most people are being taught test driven development is you write a test, um, you write just enough you know code to make the test pass. Uh, you may refactor a little bit and then you go on and write a new test. Um, so if you follow, so this is the red green refactor cycle. So if you follow this um, process fairly you know rigidly. Um, you, you'll start by having one test case and that one test case, you can basically, the simplest thing that can possibly work there is just to return, you know, a hard coded answer because that's going to pass that one test case. And, um, and then, you know, as you add another test case, you have to make the code a little bit more general, you know, because it now needs to be able to handle two different cases instead of just one. And then you add more and more so, and so on. Um, so it's, it's just, it strikes me as a little bit like, you know, traditional triangulation where, um, if you, um, let's say if you want to locate a radio uh, transmitter somewhere, you know, in, in the old times, maybe when we had, uh, you know, radio towers that would transmit radio, uh, you could walk around in the surrounding landscape and sort of, if you have a radio direction finder and sort of get the idea of the bearing of the, um, of the radio tower. And if you walk around enough and you, you can do simple, you know, um, geometry to, to figure out, okay, say what's the exact location of the radio tower, mm -hmm. even if you don't have, you know, visual contact with that. So that's triangulation. Uh, and, and test driven development, uh, just sort of strikes me as being, um, it's almost the same exact, except that the, um, the, the thing that you, that you're trying to, you know, the position that you're trying to find, it doesn't actually exist. It's more like, you know, with the radio tower, the radio tower already exists and you move around to figure out where it is. Whereas with, you know, writing test cases, it's sort of, sort of almost in the opposite direction where you say, um, instead of trying to measure where does the signal come from, you sort of point in the, in, in, in one direction and then you move around a little bit in the landscape and then you point in a, you know, it's sort of like in the same direction, but from a different position mm -hmm. and then you know the cross uh, where all those beams cross if you will um that's that's where your target is so that's sort of like the visual metaphor that i imagine that's the where best I, position for your radio tower then yeah yeah exactly <laughs> uh, so but instead of you know finding a position for a radio tower you you figure out okay what's the yeah. algorithm or you know yeah. what's the behavior that you that you're actually driving there um so um yeah, so this just strikes me as being a, a pretty obvious metaphor, and I think mm -hmm. I may have picked it up from Robert C. Martin. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. um, he, he he's really really close to one of some of those metaphors mm -hmm. as well. So, in general, what role do tests play in your vision of, of good software development? I think um, it's a critical question. Yeah. Many lots of a lot of conversations have been had about this particular topic. Still, I'm uh -huh. interested in your opinion. Yeah. Um, so what I am basically trying to advocate for in the book is what I call, you know, something that you could generalize as being feedback driven development in the sense that I think, um, we, um, you know, writing, writing code that, that actually works is, is actually not, not that easy. We, we can very easily make you know, very simple mistakes. And, you know, if you've been in the game just for a couple of years, you know that you can make all sorts of stupid mistakes where, you know, when you come back to them, find the bug, you know, two years later, you can say, how could I have, have been so stupid to make this sort of mistake? But you make them. Um, so I think it's very important that you get some immediate feedback on the code that you write so that you can get an idea of whether it works or not. And there are various different ways of doing that. And test-driven development is definitely a very popular and a very well-known uh, way to get feedback on um, on the correctness of your system. It's it's not the only one, um, but it's it's a major one that I often you know um, recommend that people use together with some of the other ones. So, but other examples are uh, again you know I mentioned before I like static type systems quite a lot, and uh, mm -hmm. you know you can actually get a lot out of this the compiler if you have a you know a, a language with a good uh, type system, and particularly if you try to you know, design your objects or your types in a certain way, you can actually get a lot of feedback from the compiler itself because it says, okay, this thing is actually not even type checking. So it can't be, you know, it can't possibly be right. Um, you'd also have lots of, of compiled languages would have um, uh, compiler errors, of course, but also compiler warnings. Uh, mm -hmm. And at least I, I find with C Sharp, for example, all the compiler warnings that the compiler will emit are... Um, almost always worth 
looking into because there's there you know there might be false positives, but my in my experience, most of the compiler warnings that the C sharp compiler will emit at least will be uh, some you will have you will you will want to address those warnings because it's probably an error on on your part mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things i recommend in the book for example just a simple thing thing is just just turn on this this you know flag you can set where all warnings will become errors mm -hmm. uh, and that prevents you from from um uh piling up you know compiler warnings i remember i just uh, you know once i sat with a team where um uh, we were looking through things and they had like hundreds of compiler warnings, uh, which made it really difficult to find, you know, I was looking at some code they just wrote and they couldn't figure out why, why it didn't work. And I knew that there was going to be a compiler warning because I was, I had just looked at the code that they've written. Um, but they were so engrossed in just writing the code that they didn't notice. And that's often what happens when you're writing code. Yeah. Uh, so I just suggested to them, could we look through the compiler warnings and see if there's a warning? And, and the guy said, well, we can't do that, but let's, because we have like three, 300 of them already. Um, so, so that's what inspired me. Those sorts of, of experiences inspired me to say to people, okay, just turn warnings into errors because that prevents you from, you know, piling up all those warnings uh, because you can't mm -hmm. really move on uh, if, if, if a warning is an error. So that's another kind of feedback you can get yeah. to sort of, you know, get a little check on not making stupid mistakes. Yeah, I seem to recall you mentioned that pretty early on, right? The smile mm -hmm. when I read it. I, I, I strongly support that advice. Uh, yeah. also, it reminded me of a project where, where, uh, where there were tons of exceptions being thrown and exception stack traces being printed in the logs. Ah. But that was just normal operations. Yeah. So you just expected them to be everywhere. So right. was, it was complete. All the information was completely lost because yeah. if, it, if it's noise, then you filter it out as noise without ever paying attention to what's yeah. happening there. So yeah. that really is a problem. And using the tools that you have at your disposal is definitely, definitely an obviously good idea. So yeah, strong, right, absolutely. Yeah, and, and this is also one of the reasons why I'm I'm fairly um, aggressive when it comes to thresholds in in general. So you know, for example, with warnings and errors. Uh, the correct number of c compiler warnings is zero. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, as you mentioned, you know, unhandled exceptions in production, the correct number of unhandled exceptions in production is zero, exactly mm -hmm. for the reason that you mentioned. Um, if you have a lot of them already, you know, the, the important ones will just be drowned out by all the ones that aren't normal in, in quotes. Right. Um, but, and again, you know, this, this comes back to this distinction between, you know, the two, you know, parts of the book, the acceleration part and the sustainability part of the book, because it's much easier um, to um, eradicate all those, all that noise if you if you do it from uh, from the beginning. Um, mm. Because you know, I would often, you know, if if um, if I'd say to most organizations, you know, the correct number of unhandled exceptions in your production system is zero, you know, people will just laugh at me and say that's that's not possible because you know. They have so many, but I know it's possible because if you build that idea in from the beginning and say there can't be any, you know, exceptions, unhandled exceptions in production. Well, the fact is there will be, but then again, it becomes, so this, this is from, you know, from the, um, this is an idea from lean, uh, from lean software manufacturing or so lean software development that comes from lean manufacturing, this idea about, you know, all defects are stop the line issues. Yeah. Um, so if you actually see an unhandled exception in your production system, that becomes top priority because you don't want those to, to build yeah. up. And it, I find that, you know, with my limited experience, uh, that it's, um, it's possible to, to actually eradicate those unhandled exceptions in production. If you, um, if you go after them very aggressively from the, from the get go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you, if you say that, uh, one of the strategies to get to this is to do it right from the beginning, right. And to treat violations of those rules as things that stop the line. What do you do if you inherit a code base that yeah. doesn't follow, didn't follow those rules? How, how applicable are the strategies and heuristics to, for, for a project like that? Right. So that's why, you know, the part, you know, the second part of the book has some ideas for, for, you know, dealing with some of those uh, things um so for example if you have a uh, if you have this code base with you know 300 compiler warnings uh it's 
it's probably not realistic to um to just say well our top priority is to get to zero compiler warning mm -hmm. straight away but what you can do is still you can start to to sort of chip away um, you know at the compiler warnings a little bit at a time it's it's one of you know it's one of those maintenance tasks where um you can actually um distribute them over a team and take them in small bites so if you basically if you have I know this is probably unrealistic to many people, but if you have like an hour of um, idle time somewhere because you're waiting for something else, you're waiting for a code review or whatever else it is, it's actually a, a really nice um, little thing, you know, little extra task you can take on and say, I want to go particularly after a, you know a certain category of compiler warnings. So maybe you can you know you can filter those warnings into various different categories and so on. And they will also typically have different um, sources. So a, a normal code base is often you know um, uh, assembled from various different libraries that are you know assembled into an application. So maybe you can just look at one library and one category of errors in that particular library. And then you can say, okay, so I'm going to go after, you know, I have two hours to spend here because I'm waiting for a code review or whatever it is. You can say, okay, I'm going to go for that category of warnings in this particular library because instead of being 300 uh, warnings, there's going to be 10 warnings or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then you can go for those and you can, and you can say, I'm going to eradicate those warnings from that library. And then you can commit that to your, you know, to your source control system and send a pull request for that or merge it into master, whatever. Um, and then you just, you know, you, you improve the situation, uh, just a little bit mm -hmm. and maybe you can then go in, you know, in, in at least in C sharp, you can then go and, and change the settings of, of the compiler for this part of the code base where you can then say, all right, so for this category of warnings in this particular library, that's those categories warnings should now be treated as, you know, compiler errors because there are no more of those category in that part of the code base. So you can sort of slowly migrate, you know, a little bit of it at a time um, so that you can sort of get to that, you know, goal of zero warnings, but mm -hmm. maybe it's going to take you a lot of time. Um, but it's one of those things again, where you can say lots of people can do that, you know, in uh, they can do it on their, um, on their idle time. If they, if they have idle mm -hmm. time. And I think lots of people will just probably feel that they have no idle time. But I think if you actually look at, if you actually look at what programmers do, I, I would believe that most people actually have lots of idle time. They just don't often identify yeah. it as such. It probably depends on the culture of the of the project, right? Oh, yeah. The organization, whether that's whether that's seen as a good thing. Well, uh -huh. Whether somebody says, "Well, yeah, awesome that you did that," yeah, or whether somebody says, "Well, why did you waste your, waste your time right. fixing something that didn't yeah. need fixing?" Yes. Well, which I agree is not a good reaction. But if mm -hmm. you have to fear for that reaction, yeah. then it's highly unlikely that you'll do something like that. Yeah. So maybe related to that, um, you mentioned before that you changed your mind a bit from the crafts people view yeah. to the to the engineering view yeah uh, one of the thing one of the things that i understood and as, and associated in my head with the with the crafts personship thing is that you take pride in your work mm -hmm. and you don't do shitty work you just you always want to do things that you know don't insult your personal honor you know and your the, and the, the way you want to do things is that something you still believe in or ha have you dropped that along with the movement from craftsperson to engineer views of things no, no i no, no i i still take lots of pride in my work and i believe mm -hmm. strongly that we should um that we should try to do our, the best that we can um so so the idea of of moving towards something that's a little bit more engineering based again is is more because i realize that a lot of the um a lot of the rules of thumbs that i use to um to do good work, uh, you know, in my own subjective opinion, uh, were things that were teachable and, um, and applicable to, um, to, to, you know, to more than just me. Uh, mm -hmm. so that's why I, I, I began to see that as, as, as a small step towards something that is more engineering based. Um, it's, it's not that I, you know, so I don't see that as being opposed to the idea of craftsmanship. I see, mm -hmm. see it more as, as being, uh, maybe not a parallel, you know, it's, it's not pulling in, in exactly the same direction, but it's, it's, they can definitely be aligned, those two forces. I can also imagine how they can be, you know, pulling in, you know, in various, you know, in opposite directions, but it's sort of like, if you imagine that those, these are two forces that pull along two different vectors, um, 
the idea here is to sort of make those vectors pull in fairly much the same you know direction um <laughs> So that that's 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 the way I, I believe that you can be most uh, productive. Um, so, but but what you just said here is is actually you know with the example of of you know if you have a culture where people are actually being told that they can't waste in in air quotes their mm -hmm. their time on doing uh, you know maintenance work like that, that's a typical example where you have you know the, the those two vectors pulling in basically the opposite direction of each other. Totally agree. Um, so. Um, and people often ask me, what should we do about that if we're in that sort of culture? And, and, and what I've tried to tell people is that, um, I don't know. I, I mean, that's not, you know, why, are you, why are you asking me about this? Um, I, I have no, you know, I have, I actually don't have a good answer, answer to that in the, in the sense that, um, you know, I understand why people ask me because they feel that they, I've somehow convinced them <laughs> that to do something else. Yeah. And then they sort of want me to convince their colleagues or their managers as well. And mm -hmm. what I try to tell them is the, the reason why I convinced you is, is because you were ready to be changed. Um, but I can't go and change some people who are not ready to be changed. That, that's a you need a salesperson to do that, and I'm not a salesperson. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. uh, so you need you need someone someone else to do that. But you know, ultimately, it boils down to Martin Fowler's. You know, change your organization or or change your organization. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I completely agree with that. I think mm. my, my personal view is that I, I think the, the, the this craftsperson view is a little too idealistic for my taste. Okay, it seems to you know sort of draw the motivation from from some abstract, almost spiritual view of the whole. It's like that is maybe I'm not maybe I'm not spiritual enough for that. That's entirely <laughs> possible for, for other people. That is maybe the right way to do things. I think the, the move towards engineering that you she says, this is just a neutral thing, right? This is just a trade-off. Of course, it might, at the moment, it might not be the best investment of time to invest this one hour into mm -hmm. getting rid of compiler warnings yeah. because that's not the best use of that engineering time, right? Could better be spent writing a test or automating something or improving build time by 5%, whatever. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that is the best investment of your time. And in general, of course, you should aim for all of this. But I think it, it's sort of, the engineering view is that all of this are trade-offs. There is no truth. There is no, mm. this is the right thing. There's just, you know, it's like, it's, and it's not, it's not, a, there is no good or bad. There is nothing, you know, you're not a more worthy person if you follow this line. It's just that, you know, this particular situation calls for this engineering approach and this mm -hmm. calls for that engineering approach. So it's, I think it's a little more science-driven or, or neutral. That may just be my rationalizing what happens to be my current opinion, which changes all the time as well. So uh -huh. it's just, you know, just posing this to you for comments. So it's like, no, but uh, it, it makes much sense to me. And, and that's also the you know, direction I've been going in for the you know, last couple of years, exactly. Because, you know, if, if we make, if we, if we make it all crafts based, it becomes all personal. It becomes all mm -hmm. subjective. And it also makes it much more difficult for, um, for us to work together as at least that's, that's what, that's how I see it. Because every, mm -hmm. if everything starts to boil down, boil down to, you know, do I like this or not? Instead of, mm -hmm. of trying to evaluate is this code, um, does this code solve the problem? Um, and, and one of the, one of the things that I is my focus in in the book and in general is that code has two purposes. It has the immediate purpose of making the software do the thing that the software is supposed to do, uh, but then it has the secondary purpose that it needs to be um, in a state so that you know the next person who comes in and has to work mm -hmm. with that code can, you know effectively yeah. work with the code without you know yes. generating too many new bugs and so on so this comes into this whole idea be you know being yeah. readable and understandable and so on yeah and which also touches a little bit from you personally right from you you as a person are not the most important thing here it's the exactly the code, yeah that's i like that a lot it's actually very impersonal or or you know it it the focus is actually on anyone else than me, yes. uh, in yes. the sense that, uh, you know, this code needs to be understandable by someone else. Someone may, I may even know because there might be a new employee who's, who's, who's got hired next month that has to work with this code. And I don't even know who that person is yet. And, uh, yeah. the code should be, um, 
to a standard where that person can come in and take that code over or, or also work with it. And and yes. also I'm just taking, you know, I'm just being kind to myself six months from now because six yeah. months from now I'm, I'm a, not, a new Future person market. as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so a lot of the ideas in the book is, is, is just try to, you know, give you some good rules of thumbs of, of, of trying mm -hmm. to evaluate is this, is this going to be readable and understandable by, by someone else? Awesome. So, so maybe let's move to the last thing that I picked um, mm -hmm. and talk a bit about rhythm. Yeah. Is this about music or what's the topic here? Uh, yeah. Uh, if, if only, <laughs> if only it wasn't about music, but uh, yeah, it's, it's about the way that you can approach um, your day or your week or, or your months. And uh, I think I have two subsections in that chapter. I have one on personal rhythm and one on team rhythm. Um, but it's, and again, it's just some general observations about how you could, you know, um, organize your day. Um, so it's not one of those productivity manuals that, that, you know, tell you to organize your day in a particular way, but it's just some ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and to start with the personal rhythm, what I've often found is that, um, getting away from the computer regularly is actually what makes me, you know, most productive. Uh, so, you know, this goes a little bit counter to the, um, to the general, you know, general programmer ideal of being in the zone you know lots of people like to be in the zone this idea of where you just sit and program and you know six hours just uh, went by and it's dark out and you feel feel that you have been very productive um but what i've actually found with with these uh, you know sessions where you just program and code and code and code and code away is that you can often um you can lose sight of what it is that you're doing while you're in the zone. Uh, so you can actually waste a lot of time going in a, you know, in a wrong direction because you never stop to, you know, you never pause to reflect on whether this idea, you know, the direction that you're going at the moment is, is actually a good direction or not. Um, so I, I use various different, uh, life hacks to force me to stop, uh, ever, ever so often and, and go and do something else. Uh, so I have the Pomodoro timer that, that goes off every, every 25 minutes just to remind me to have a break. Uh, so for me, the Pomodoro is almost like, you know, it's almost opposite of what it is for a lot of people in the sense that I actually use it to force myself into taking the breaks. Um, sometimes I also use it for the normal way, but, um, mm -hmm. but this idea of having a break, um, uh, you know, personally, I have this, this rule that I have to get out of my chair and out of the room. I have to leave the room. Um, and then, you know, what very often happens is that, uh, I get a new insight while I'm away and doing something else, even if it's just for five minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, and in general, if, if you expand on that, I, I also, you know, I've been working for, from home for a lot of, um, for many years now. So I usually do some, uh, I either grocery shopping or I do some ex physical exercise during the day. And, um, and my general experience is all the insights, all the breakthroughs that I've ever done in software development has, you know, they've always come when I was away from the, from this, from the computer. Um, so taking those breaks and come, you know, getting away from the, from the keyboard at regular intervals is actually, at least in my experience, a very, um, Mm -hmm. a very big productivity boost and i've asked around a little bit not scientifically but just you know um whenever i had the opportunity to ask other people and and that seems to be a general observation that most people have mm -hmm. yeah so that's I one thing you can do i, I recall a, a, a talk by rich hickey the closure yeah. guy he was talking about hammock time yeah 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 uh, which i think is way underappreciated so yeah Hammock-driven development. Hammock-driven development, yes. Yeah. So um, this was all, I think, related to personal time. You also mentioned yeah. team rhythm, right? How are those two things related? Right. Yeah. So, um, so again, this is not a prescriptive um, set of things you must do. It's just some ideas that you can consider to do as a team. And when I'm talking about team here, my, most of my experience is with small teams, like 10 people or something like that. Um, so... Um, so one thing that I talk about in the book is, is for example, a code review. Uh, and I think there are lots of good reasons for, while, uh, for why you would like to have code reviews. Uh, but then we often run into this problem that, you know, when, when people try it out, they say, well, yeah, but, you know, if we submit something for a review, um, we have to wait 
three or four days uh, before someone will actually pick it up and do the review. So, so that's not really efficient. So one of the, th the things you might actually do is that, you know, lots of teams already have uh, a little bit of rhythm to their day. Lots of teams, for example, do a daily standup. Um, so, so the ideas, some of the ideas in that chapter is just to say, well, you could also have, you know, another part of that daily team rhythm where, where you say, well, we set aside particular parts of the day to do reviews. Um, a review, in my opinion, is something that all team members do on a regular basis. It's not, you know, one gatekeeper who sits and say what can and can't mm -hmm. go in, but it's just like you want other people, you want your peers to look through what you wrote so that they can, you know, verify whether it's readable or not. Uh, so one idea is, for example, you can say, well, you know, um, um, be just, you know, the hour before you go to lunch or the half the hour before you go to lunch, uh, you could do review. So each person takes a different review or maybe just when you come back from lunch or something like that, but, mm -hmm. but just find, uh, find some, some time where you can agree on this is where this is when we do this, these things, uh, for example, like code reviews, um, because, um, my experience is that that if you can get people to do regular code reviews and everyone, you know, do them, then you can often have a, a, a review cadence where um, you wait one or two hours, may, maybe, and then you get a review result. Um, and then, you know, while you're waiting for the review, you do a review yourself. Uh, so it's sort of like a, you know, it goes mm -hmm. both ways. So that's one thing you do. And then, then there are some other rhythms you can do on a maybe a weekly or a monthly basis. There's some things, you know, I talk a little bit about checklists in the book as well. And, and one of the things that I've noticed is that um, um, you have to be a little bit systematic uh, about certain things that need to be done in the code base because otherwise everyone would sort of forget how to do them. And so one example, for example, is the um, updating dependencies. You know, every code base today comes with lots of dependencies. It doesn't really matter whether it's, uh, you know, a JavaScript or with NPM or, you know, in C Sharp, mm -hmm. you have NuGet and and so on. And um, And you can't go and update dependencies all the time because in you know with certain environments at least you would basically be doing nothing else than updating dependencies all the time which is probably too frequent but you can also fall too too far behind uh i i've i've seen code bases where they haven't updated their dependencies in three or four years and that mm -hmm. now means that they can't update the dependencies anymore because now that becomes suddenly it becomes a major undertaking because there will, there's so many breaking changes in doing these updates um, so if you have some sort of team rhythm that's already centered around doing something every week or something every month or something, you might want to consider making that part of the team rhythm. So for example, for not that I recommend that, but if you're doing scrum and you're doing, you know, two week sprints, for example, in scrum, it might be a good idea to say, well, when we start a new sprint, uh, one of the first things that need to happen is to update dependencies. Mm -hmm. uh, but and again, this is just a suggestion or you know a, an idea for inspiration. So if you can identify something else where you say that would actually be a really really good idea to do on a semi regular uh, basis, but we should remember to do this. Um, it's it's mm -hmm. something to to just you know be explicit about. Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. So those are the th those were just three topics that we picked. There's a whole ton more in the book. Mm -hmm. which I can thoroughly recommend. I, uh, I, I've uh, found it to be a, a great recommendation for people who are maybe on the, on the, on the, on the boundary of, you know, becoming from a, from, from a somewhat experienced to a more experienced engineer, if we want to use that word, right? So yeah. it's like, it gives you a lot of, maybe accelerates you a bit. Maybe, maybe the, the two titles accelerate and, and sustain or acceleration sustainability also maintain to people's career while they're absorbing the stuff in here. I like that uh, metaphor for that mm -hmm. as well. Um, so, um, uh, strong recommendation. We will definitely put, of course, a link to the book into the show notes. Typically at the end of the show, we ask for recommendations for other resources. I noticed that you have a very extensive bibliography and lots of references in the book. So I yeah. think that's probably what you would recommend. I guess. Um, true. It's, 
It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Do you have any famous last words that you want to add <laughs> yeah. before we say goodbye? Uh, well, you know, obviously, I hope that people would uh, pick the book up and give it a chance. Uh, but uh, you can also go and visit the blog of mine, you know, blog.plur.dk, which I've been writing on for 15 years now. It's yeah. completely free. Uh, so if you don't want to, you know, think that this is just a you know, a sales push. Uh, you can always just go to the blog. And the occasional that. sales push is perfectly yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't yeah. Have to worry about but there's that. lots of free material there as well. That sort of. Yes, uh, I can definitely uh, recommend yeah. the blog as well. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's uh, and uh, and we just talked a little bit before we started recording here about you know conferences. Uh, I'll be I'll be probably touring around with the NDC conferences this year if if everything goes okay. according to plan. So um, I hope to see uh, some some people again in 2022 well, yeah <laughs> hope, hope to run into you again at one of yeah. the next conferences thanks again for being on the show it was awesome and thanks to our listeners for listening and until next time bye bye <laughs>